The book of Jeremiah, we've come to the section where, as the destruction of the city of Jerusalem is close at hand, uh, that uh, God has begun to encourage the faithful among the flock concerning the ultimate return and uh, the blessings that will accompany this, uh, the, his faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham. And in the 31st chapter, we saw where Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant that God would make with the house of Israel. In uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And uh, verse 33, This shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and they shall be my God. Uh, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And when we looked at this, we said we shouldn't understand this new covenant as something different in substance from the old covenant. Your Bible is divided into Old Covenant, New Covenant, or Old Testament, New Testament. Actually, it's the old administration of the one way of salvation, the one covenant of grace, and the new administration. We're saved the same way Abraham was saved. And when Paul wants to talk about how man is saved today, he goes back to Abraham. He says, how was Abraham saved? And in Romans 4, he says, Abraham believed God, as he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. And it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was a sinner. But through faith, through trust in God's promises, particularly God's promise of a Messiah, God's promise of forgiveness to Abraham through the blood of the Lamb, through trust in God's promise, through faith, Abraham is counted righteous. He's counted as if he had the perfect obedience which the law required. That's the same way we're saved. Well, then wherein does this new administration differ from the old administration of this one covenant of grace, called grace because salvation is a gift, not something we earn? He tells us, he said, well, there'll be a new inscription. I will write my law on your heart. Uh, under the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. Under the new, God would so give the indwelling of his spirit and a new heart that those under this new covenant would have a much greater indwelling power to obey God. He'd write his law on their heart, a new inscription of the law. Uh, there would be a new relation to himself. Oh, there was a relation under the old. I will be their God, they will be my people. I will be a God to Abraham and to his seed after him. But under the new, this takes on so much more meaning. Under the old, uh, there were a few men who had close relation with God. Abraham was called the friend of God. God spoke to Moses 
as a man does to his friend, face to face, we're told. David had uh, this close relation. But that was rare under the old, given to just a few men. And uh, even then, not experienced in anything like the closeness of relationship that the least Christian experiences today through the indwelling Spirit of God. Sometimes you may wish that you'd been around when Jesus was on earth and you could have been one of his disciples and walked with him. You remember what Jesus told the disciples? He said, it's better for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Spirit will not come. But I will go and the Father will send another Comforter who will abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Christ could only share his company with a few. How much time could you have gotten with Christ if you'd have been alive in his day? But now you can get all the time and closer time with him than you can, than they could have imagined through the indwelling Spirit of God that came into the world in this much deeper indwelling with the day of Pentecost. A new relation, a new revelation. He says, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor know the Lord, for they shall all know me, meaning all believers shall have this knowledge of me, a much greater knowledge than the greatest under the old covenant had, much more light. We understand about Jesus that he was God and man, that he died, that he rose from the dead. We understand all of this. We have the Spirit of God to teach us the Scriptures, dwelling within in this much greater way than they had him dwelling within. A new revelation. Finally, a new absolution. Their iniquities I will remember no more. They had absolution, but they had to keep making these offerings. And uh, how could a, a lamb's blood atone for a man's sin? But we know what that blood represented. And uh, the true Lamb of God, having been offered and saying on the cross, It is finished, Christ having made his once-for-all sacrifice for sins, we need no more offering for sin. We know how it stands. We just sung, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. A new absolution, forgiveness, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song praising my Savior all the day long. They couldn't sing that under the old. They didn't have that kind of solid light and assurance. Uh, they knew these things in shadow, but not in the way that we know them today. So, we see something of the new covenant and the privileges of it. In the 32nd chapter, God told uh, Jeremiah... As the city is about to fall, the Babylonians have surrounded it. It's under siege. It's soon to fall. They occupy all the surrounding territory, and God tells Jeremiah to buy a field from his cousin that's outside of those walls that was really valueless now that the Babylonians were occupying that field. But God told him to do that as a symbolic act, saying, once again... 
They will return from captivity. Because of the sin of this nation, I'm sending them into captivity, but I'll bring them back. They will again occupy the land. Fields will again be brought and sold. And so I want you to buy this field now, showing that you believe that. And then when he says this, he goes on to state again, uh, this in connection with the covenant in chapter 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again into this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. We notice here again it's the covenant promise that is brought before them, and he refers to it here as an everlasting covenant. Uh, Really, uh, uh, this is to be fulfilled, uh, of course, in Christ. Uh, Now, in chapter 33, uh, the portion for today, and uh, verses 15 through 24, we have a further elaboration uh, of this covenant and the provisions of it. We gain further insights into the covenant, particularly the new covenant. Uh, The reason there's so much emphasis at this point in Jeremiah Uh, on the covenant is the fact that uh, uh, God is uh, seeking to hold up the faith of the remnant, the true believers in the nation, as uh, their uh, throne, uh, their king is about to be destroyed, and uh, they won't have a king on the throne of David thereafter until Christ comes, ultimately. Their temple is to be destroyed. They're to go into captivity. And uh, so to bolster their hope, to encourage this true remnant, he mentions again these covenant promises, and uh, particularly these great and grand provisions of the new covenant. Well, the same is true in regard to you and to me. Uh, The days around us look dark as we look at our nation, the economy, the seeming indolence uh, concerning uh, national defense, the growing threat of communism as it, as a creeping octopus uh, occupies more and more of the free world and uh, as there seems to be so much confusion uh, in our nation, uh, uh, so much immoral decay, uh, our hearts could faint also and we could go weak and our hands could be weakened for the task that is before us. But right here is where God's covenant promises come in. Uh, The hymn writer has stated it like this, His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Uh, Let's look at these uh, covenant provisions as elaborated in the 33rd chapter, starting with the 15th verse. The first thing that we have in this 15th verse is the person who will come in fulfillment of this covenant. In verse 15, In those days 
and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Uh, we had uh, uh, back in the 23rd chapter and uh, uh, verse <clears throat> 5 and 6, the same terminology used to describe the Messiah. There he is referred to as the branch, and uh, the language goes like this. Uh, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Uh, again, we have the term branch, and we would understand that this branch uh, is picturing a uh, tree that has been cut down as the uh, throne of David, the line of David would be uh, cut down in a sense uh, as the king is removed and there will be uh, no king on the throne of David for hundreds of years. But then out of that cut down stump, a branch will spring up which will grow into a mighty tree. And Jesus is this branch, the coming Messiah is this branch. Uh, he is of the lineage of David. It says that he will grow up unto David. Uh, when will he come? It says, In those days I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up. What days is he referring to? Well, if we take it as the days when they returned from captivity in Babylon, which was 536 B.C., that's not when the Messiah came, when Jesus came. But that return was a picture of the greater release that Jesus would usher in with his coming when he came. And so it can, it can serve to speak of his coming hundreds of years later. In those days, he will raise up this branch of righteousness. He's called a branch of righteousness because he would be righteous. He would be without sin. I, a son of David. Now, in 39, this is interesting. Look at 30, chapter 30 and verse 9. He's referred to as David himself. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Now this is written 400 years after David died. But he says, in this future kingdom they will serve David their king. No, they won't. They'll serve the branch of Christ. But... David was a type or a symbol of Christ. David was the king after God's own heart. And uh, so he pictured Christ. And he's just his name is used interchangeably there with the Messiah. Calvin says, David was dead, but under the person of David, the prophets exhibited Christ. Now, what will he do when he comes? It says he will execute justice, 
And he will execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Chapter 33, verse 15. He will reign in righteousness. This king will come and he will reign. Calvin says, it is necessary to bear in mind the character of Christ's kingdom. It is, we know, spiritual, a spiritual kingdom. But it is set forth in this prophecy under the image or form of an earthly or civil government, because otherwise it could not have been sufficiently understood by a rude and uneducated people. When he comes, what kind of a kingdom will it be? Well, as far as we read here, it will be like any other kingdom, for all we know. And until he appeared, says Patrick Fairburn in his great work on the interpretation of prophecy, until Christ appeared, they should have looked for an earthly kingdom. Now, that's an important point. I was reading a recent book, The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. This is published by InterVarsity, and the editor has done an interesting thing. He's taken four leading proponents of the four major prophetical views, and he's had each set forth his view, and then he's had each of the others react to the view. For instance, uh, he has Eldon Ladd of Fuller Seminary present the view of historic premillennialism. He has Herman Hoyt of Grace Seminary present the view of dispensational premillennialism. He has uh, Lorraine Bettner present the view of postmillennialism, and he has A.A. Uh, A. Holcoma present the view of amillennialism. And then he has each react to the other. Let me quote from the dispensational premillennialist view as set forth by Herman Hoyt of Grace Seminary. He's speaking of the kingdom that was prophesied by Jeremiah and these other prophets. And he says, It will be a literal kingdom in every sense of that word. It will be as real as any kingdom on the face of the earth, as real as the historical kingdom in Israel, as real as David's kingdom. The actual place of its central location will be Jerusalem, and uh, a real king will sit on a material throne. That's his view of what that prophecy meant. Uh, he goes on to say that when Jesus came, he offered this kingdom to the people of Israel, but they rejected the king and his kingdom. So... The kingdom was postponed, he says. In a peculiar sense, the kingdom has been placed in a position of abeyance or suspension during the period extending from Pentecost to the return of Christ. If it were in existence, he says, in this sense that it was prophesied, then members of the church, you and I, would be ruling on the earth. We'd be part of a government that ruled the earth because that's the kind of kingdom that was prophesied, he says. He says, now, in a limited sense, participation in this kingdom is being experienced, 
by members of the church today. That sounds contradictory. Upon conversion and regeneration, people are being translated into that kingdom. Colossians 1.13. Well, the New Testament does say that people are being translated into God's kingdom. Now, now let's get the, the reaction to his dispensational premillennial view by another premillennialist, Elton Ladd. But his view differs. He's a historic premillennialist. He doesn't believe that the kingdom was postponed in any sense whatsoever. And here's what he says. He says, It's difficult to see how Hoyt can successfully argue that the kingdom was suspended. The usual dispensational word is postponed when it was rejected by Israel. The fact is, Jesus' offer of the kingdom was not universally rejected. A good number of people received it and became Jesus' disciples. These constituted a little flock, Luke 12:32. Jesus said, It is the Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. He says, The little flock received the kingdom Jesus offered, and thus became the people of the kingdom, the true spiritual Israel. You remember also, he didn't point it out, but Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, he said, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you, the Jewish nation, and given to a people, given right then, to a people bringing forth the fruit thereof, given to the spiritual Israel, the true church made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and surrender to him as their Lord. Lad goes on to say this. He says uh, that Jesus, as he cast out demons, answered the argument that he was casting them out by being in league with the devil by saying, if I, through the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come among you. It says the kingdom had come with his coming. He established it. There's the reaction of a historic premillennialist to the view that the literal kingdom, that the kingdom is literal and that it was postponed. The reaction of Hokema, an amillennialist, he says on page 87, Hoyt says that during his trial, Jesus continued to urge his claims as the king of Old Testament prophecy, meaning, I infer from the earlier part of the essay, the king of an earthly kingdom which would involve sitting on an earthly throne and ruling over Israel. One of the passages quoted in support of this statement is John 18, 33-39. But, in that passage, says Pokemon, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says to Jesus, Are you a king? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. It's not an earthly kingdom. 
It's a spiritual kingdom. And uh, when Pilate says, Art thou king then? Jesus said, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. So, Hokema says, Surely Jesus replies to Pilate, indicate that he is not the king of an earthly kingdom, but he is king in the realm of truth. In other words, the king of a kingdom which is primarily spiritual, not earthly. That's exactly right. He would come. He would set up a kingdom. He did come. He did set up a kingdom. He is presently reigning. He is seated at God's right hand, sharing God's throne. All authority has been given unto him. As Paul told of his commission, he said, I've been commissioned. This is what Christ told me when I was converted, that I would go out and preach the gospel and open men's eyes that they might be delivered from the power of Satan and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son, translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that's exactly what takes place. Now, the kingdom has already come. There is a yet final manifestation and fulfillment in the final aspect of that kingdom when Christ returns. But the kingdom has come, as prophesied in the Old Testament, and Christ reigns right now. Philip Hughes, who's preached here on several occasions uh, of Westminster Seminary, in his recently published book, The Interpretation of Prophecy, he says, the apostolic perspective of the New Testament then sees Jesus enthroned on high in glory from the time of his ascension until his manifestation at the end of this age, when he will transform his faithful servants into his own likeness and execute final judgment to the impenitent. His kingdom is not future but present, extending from his ascension to his return, when he will hand it over to God the Father. He will continue to reign over his church forever, but he will hand over the reins of the universe to the Father. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15, that he must reign. He's reigning now, and he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his foot. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. When will death be destroyed? When Christ returns and your body is either transformed or resurrected from the dead. That's the destruction of death. As Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So, uh, we see the type of kingdom that he will, that this person who comes will inaugurate. And notice the people over whom he will reign. In verse 16, In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. The people over whom he will reign, we see the person who will come, the people over whom he will reign, the salvation and safety of Judah and Jerusalem. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. Is that the literal Jewish nation? Well, if so, it didn't happen. Because when Jesus came, Judah was destroyed 40 years later by the Roman army and was scattered to the four winds. And only in our own lifetime have they been back in their nation. This is not speaking of the literal Judah or the literal Jerusalem, 
is speaking of the true Israel, those who respond to Jesus Christ in faith and become a part of his kingdom as he becomes king in them. Over in Hebrews 12, we read of all Christians, but you are come unto Mount Zion. You're a part of God's Israel, God's Zion. You're come unto Mount Zion, unto the heavenly Jerusalem, unto the church of the firstborn and the general assembly. That's what we're a part of. Uh, so glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be spoken, broken, formed thee for his own abode. Founded on the rock of ages, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. We see the salvation and safety of God's Judah and God's Jerusalem. Again, the designation of Jerusalem. This is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Back in the 23rd chapter, it said, This is the name wherewith he, the branch, shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now it's she, Jerusalem. Why is that? Because in every marriage, the bride receives the husband's name. We sung earlier about the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own love he bought her, and for her life he died. We're the bride of Christ, the true Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And his name is given to us, the Lord, our perfect obedience, the Lord, our righteousness. I'm righteous in Christ. I'm a sinner in myself a learned, doomed sinner as far as any goodness of my own. It matters not that I've preached for 20 years. I'd go to hell tomorrow if I had to go and stand on my record before God. But because Christ's record is given to me when I put my trust in Christ, I am righteous. I have a perfect obedience in the sight of God. That's true of every member of the bride of Christ. We see the people over whom he will reign. Third, the perpetuity of his reign. It goes on in verse 17. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. His reign will go on. Now, this speaks first of the covenant provisions for David's succession on the throne. It says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. How was that fulfilled? Well, since the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., there hadn't been a king. There has not been a king of the Jewish people. And here we are thousands of years later. They have no king today. Well, how was that promise fulfilled? It seems that it wasn't, then. Well, we have to appreciate, we have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. You know, at the same time that Jeremiah is prophesying this to the besieged city, one of those captives who's already gone into captivity, Ezekiel, he was prophesying something else over in Babylon. Babylon. 
And here's what he was saying in reference to that throne of David, the succession after David. In Ezekiel 21:23, uh, he says this, Thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem, remove the crown, and take off the crown. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more. There won't be a king in Judah. It shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. It's talking of Jesus, isn't it? So there would be no king until Jesus came. And then the throne of David would be given to Jesus. You remember what the angel told Mary about the son she was going to have? The angel told Mary, he shall be great, and he shall be the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this prophecy about an unbroken secession or the perpetuity of this kingdom was fulfilled in Christ when he came. It was given to him. And now he reigns and he will reign forever over his own people. The covenant provision for Levitical succession, for priestly succession, in verse 18, Neither shall the priests the Levites want a man before me. They won't lack any priest to offer sacrifice. But the temple was to be destroyed. How could that be? They still... Today, the temple has been destroyed again, and they don't have a temple now. Because Christ would be a priest upon his throne, as Zechariah prophesied. He would be our great high priest, and his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. He ever lives to make intercession for those who come unto God by him. And second, in a second sense, it's fulfilled in the church. You and I are that succession of priests, Levites. Isaiah prophesied in the last chapter of Isaiah, said, They shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. That's not the literal Jerusalem, that's the spiritual Jerusalem saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will take of them, these people who come from the nations, the heathen, I will take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. So you're a priest and a Levite. You're one who is to be a go-between between God and man as you go out and uh, you bring people the good news of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. You're exercising your priestly ministry. As you pray for people through Christ, you're exercising your priestly ministry. The confirmation of the covenant. He says it'll be forever. Nothing will stop me from fulfilling this. And he wraps it up like this in verse 20. Thus saith the Lord, if ye can break my covenant of the day, and my covenant of the night, that there should not be day and night in their season. Then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites the priests my ministers. 
People of that day were questioning. They were saying, God is failing to keep his covenant. Verse 23, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord had chosen, he hath even cast them off? He says, They say I've broken my covenant with David, with Abraham, with Judah, with Israel. He said, That's not so. He said, I can no more break my covenant. The heavens will not go on in their orderly courses before I will break my covenant. If I break my covenant with the night and the day and the seasons, then will I break my covenant with David, that he won't have a son. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Summer and winter, seed time and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Has God been faithful to his covenant? Amen. Will God be faithful to his covenant? Amen. Are you a part of that covenant? That's the great issue. That's the great question. If you are the bride of Christ, if you are one of those who is called by the name, the Lord, our righteousness, then you are so secure, you're so privileged, you may smile at all your foes while you fight and wage a good warfare because of that covenant promise of God. Remember Jesus said, many eyes have desired to see the things that you see. Blessed are your eyes because you see it. We live in a tremendous privileged position under the new covenant. We see our blessing. We see how to interpret Scripture by Scripture. We see the meaning of the kingdom of God, the nature of that kingdom, the fact that it was not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Are you in that kingdom? Is he king in you? Have you surrendered to him as your king and trusted him as your savior? We see our responsibilities. With privileges go responsibilities. And we are the Levites and the priests, and we're to go out and share this good news with men. Are you doing that? And if you're not a part of that covenant, won't you today accept this blessed, gracious covenant, this new covenant that God offers to you through Jesus Christ? Won't you surrender to him as your king? Trust him as your righteousness, your forgiveness, your standing with God. Trust him to give you the gift of salvation. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, if you've never really committed your life to Jesus Christ as your king, never surrendered to him as your master, and trusted him as your savior, but you want to be in this covenant of grace. Won't you right now pray in your heart like this? Lord Jesus,
I want to be a part of that great spiritual kingdom with all of the blessings that you offer. I'm willing for you to be my king, to come into my life and reign over me. And I trust you for my forgiveness as a sheer gift to be my righteousness. Thank you. Amen.